Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today we begin a series dedicated to the topic of autism. Autism is something I am certainly not an expert at, but it is a topic that I've been exposed in the recent years and I have become increasingly interested in. Today my guest is Dr. Melissa King. Melissa is a board certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level with nearly 20 years of experience working in the autism industry. She is also a certified professional in healthcare quality. Dr. King is an experienced clinician and executive leader who has focused her career on improving clinical outcomes for clients and families through optimizing the efficiency and effectiveness of clinical operations and services within healthcare organizations. Dr. King is currently the Chief Product Officer for Aberray Inc., where she oversees the development of software solutions designed to promote clinical quality, improve operational efficiencies, and facilitate data transparency within organizations. By promoting data transparency, we can foster a culture of continuous improvement in the delivery of autism services, ultimately leading to better clinical outcomes and enhanced quality of life for individuals with autism and their families. Her publications can be found in multiple peer-reviewed journals, including Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, Behavior Analysis in Practice, Behavioral Interventions, Research in Autism Spectrum Disorders, and the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. Melissa and I had a great conversation. Unfortunately, this is a topic that it's impossible to cover in 30 minutes. In fact, we didn't. We ran close to 40 minutes instead. I hope you liked the conversation. Dr. King was gracious enough to provide a comprehensive list of resources that I will include in the description of the podcast for you to review. And now, without further ado, Dr. Melissa King. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. I'm here with Melissa King. Melissa, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Rafael? Doing well. Thank you so much for making time. This is definitely a topic that is of great interest to me, and I think will be of great interest for a lot of people. Today, we're going to talk about autism. So before we get started, could you give the audience a little bit of you know who you are and your background and how you got involved in this field? Yeah, Absolutely. So I started kind of in the field, like everyone starts in the field um, by accident. So I uh, started um, when I was in undergrad, I was getting kicked off my parents' insurance and I needed a job with insurance. So uh, I had a friend that said, hey, come work at the school district, work with kids with autism as a paraprofessional. So I, uh, I started there in St. Louis and worked with kids and um, I actually started to get in trouble for taking the kids outside and wanting to run their programming and work with these kids on the playground because I didn't want to sit, you know, one-on-one and at a table with them for eight hours straight. They were getting bored. I was getting bored. And uh, my supervisor would come in and say, no, you need to, you need to sit here with them and, and uh, run these sessions. And so I, I kept thinking, like, I know there's more to this. I know there's a science behind this. I need to learn more. So I uh, went on and got my master's in uh, behavior analysis and then 
continued to want to learn more about the science and uh, moved uh, to Omaha, Nebraska and went and got my PhD. And uh, there I got to kind of learn about uh, behavioral pediatrics and uh, the application of behavior analysis kind of outside of that autism industry. Um, always kept coming back to autism, did in-home services, um, and then uh, started a, a clinic there for kids with autism that just were unable to uh, access services because they didn't have insurance coverage for autism at the time for Medicaid, clients that had Medicaid. So uh, ended up uh, starting a clinic there now, you know, all of the states have have coverage for ABA services and autism services, uh, but at the time they they didn't. So we got grant funding to provide all kids services because all kids need those services. And then uh, continued on and and started working uh, for an organization that it was a university. I, I first worked at a university based autism center. And then moved on to um, a for-profit organization that uh, we had 25 centers when I started, and I oversaw clinical services for 25 centers, and then moved on to, uh, there were 65 centers when I left that organization, So, and it's still growing. So really, I've, I've always just, uh, my whole goal really with autism has always been, I know as a provider, I can help those kids to be the best that they can be and learn the most that they can learn. But as I have kind of learned and grown, I, I know that I can help more families. So if I train more people, they can help more families. If I can work in the technology space, I can help the outcomes of, of more families and more kids. So it's always my driving forces. You know, how many, how many people can I help? <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Let me, before we get into some of the thoughts that, that you and I had, had discussed before, did you see, as, as you went through your background there, you know, you obviously went from a very academic environment, right? Where you're, you're going for master's degrees, you're going for a PhD, and then eventually you move out into what some people may call the real world, right? Where you're actually uh, dealing a, a bit more closely with, with the children and with their families, was there anything that changed in your approach as you went from an academic to a more day-to-day with the children and families? Yeah, I think my approach has changed as I've gotten older. Um, I think uh, the, in the academic setting, um, very research-focused, right? So you look at kind of one intervention, and I'm looking at the change in behavior with just that one intervention, and then when you go out into, like you said, the real world, then you see it's, wow, there's a lot of other factors that I need to take in consideration. Also, there's other providers that I need to be working with and making sure we're all on the same page to make sure we're coordinating care. And sometimes, and, and even in the academic setting, right, it, depending on where you're at, if you're doing research or you're in the clinical world, you're always taking all of those things into consideration, right? Research is a little different because you're looking at one intervention, looking at their behavior. When you're in that clinical setting, you're looking at all of those pieces. And sometimes maybe families, um, I have to also consider what the families are going through, right? And and maybe my recommendations are, you know, I want you to do this. And, and I know based off the science and the research that this is what our best outcomes are going to be if we do X, Y, and Z. But sometimes that might not be feasible for a family. 
So I have to take a step back and say, okay, let's work together. How can we make this work? How can I adjust my recommendations such that this is going to be beneficial for everyone? And maybe we don't work on everything all at once. Maybe we take a step back and we say, okay, number one, this is what we're going to work on. Then we'll work on on something else a little bit later. I will also say, excuse me, as a parent, my approach has changed. So when I was a young clinician, I always tell people I would smack myself for the Mm -hmm. recommendations that I provided to parents when I was not a parent. And then now being a parent, I come back and I say, wow, you're tired. And I know why you didn't collect data because you're tired. And there's a lot of other variables going on. There's other siblings, sometimes with autism as well. You're trying to manage your relationship with your spouse. I mean, all of those things. And sometimes it's just not a hill you want to die on. So running trials, when I say go home and run five trials, that might be really hard for a family to do every day and collect data and all of those things. So I think I'm just more cognizant of some of my recommendations and then also why families may not follow through with some of my recommendations because I get it. So I work with them on what are ways that we can be most successful together. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that that is the one thing that it's the, the, the autism topic is new for me. I is something that I've, I've engaged as of recent, the past couple of years, is because of a common friend that works in that field now. But I see the disparity between how people approach it when they observe the child, uh, as assuming it's a child, it could be a, a young adult, right? Versus the family, you know, and, and the surroundings and, and all that that entitles, right? All that that covers or encompasses is probably a better word. And people forget that the families are a big part of the, of the solution, but the families, it's a difficult thing for them as it is for the child to try to do the day-to-day things that specialists like you are trying to tell them so that there can be a plan that can be uh, taken forward. So I'm, I'm glad Definitely glad that you brought that up. Want to get into a couple of things here. So, what are the top three things that you, in your experience over the years you've been doing this, that people ask you about autism, or maybe the the top three misconceptions? I'll let you go in whichever direction you want to go, because I think even though it's we know more today, I still feel like we don't know nearly enough. And I can see that because of the questions that people ask. So in your view, from your experience, your own personal uh, living in this world, what what would be the top three things that either people ask you about autism or that you feel are misconceptions? And we can actually do both if we have time. Yeah. So I would say I can, I can name three and then we can kind of dive into them. I would say I get asked a lot, does my child have autism? I mean, even my sister-in-law was asking me about my nephew, you know, does my child have autism? And I think there's just so much uh, uh, out there right now on autism. There's a lot of, uh, there's a nice spotlight shining on it, which is great for access to care. Um, But I think there's a lot of confusion about autism. I think the other thing I get as a practitioner is, will my child talk or speak? I get that question quite a bit, um, especially being in the early intervention space. 
they're really young when they come in and, and parents want to know, you know, will my child ever say mommy? Will my child ever say daddy? So we get that question quite often. And then another one, which I'm, I'm glad families are asking is how do you know what's the best treatment? How do you know how to find kind of the right provider when you're, when you're looking for services, because you do a quick Google search and everything under the sun comes up. So I think it's really um, quite challenging, you know, to know as a parent, first, you're just trying to understand, does my child have autism? And if they do have this diagnosis, what do I do now? What are next steps? So kind of going back, um, you had mentioned before, but there's uh, a poem, it's called Welcome to Holland, that resonated with me when I read this. And um, I worked with a family and, and they kind of spoke to kind of the point of the, the poem, but it really speaks to you're going, you think you're, you're packing for this trip and you're going to one place and you get there and the, and the pilot says, welcome to Holland. And I, it, it kind of makes me think for like parents, right? You have this vision when you're a parent that, oh, this is my child and we're going to do all of these things, right? They're going to do X, Y, and Z. They're going to get married and they're going to have these successful careers and all of these things are going to happen. And then you as a parent receive that diagnosis of autism for your child, right? You see your child and so a lot of times parents are like, something's not right, right? And I think with that, it's kind of like the poem where you're like, oh, you're in Holland. I didn't pack for Holland, right? I, I wasn't ready for for what I just, you know, I received this diagnosis of autism. Okay, now all the feelings come with that, right? A little bit of anger, sadness. What do I do? Confusion, right? You you have all these feelings. And then it's like, okay, we're in Holland. What are we going to do now? And it, now you, you're action oriented. And so that poem really resonates when I think about, you know, being a parent and probably what families are going through when they receive that diagnosis, because they're just not there's, there's just a lot going on when, when you receive that diagnosis, a lot of emotions and, and feelings with that. So I wanted to bring up that poem just because it does resonate with me so much of, you know, especially when I'm working with families, like I think about that and okay, does my child have autism? Okay. Let's work through all of this. How can we work together? And, and what are, what are some, some ways I can support? Excellent. So how do, how do we, so if we take those three questions, like yeah, number one, does my child have autism what does the latest science say about that and how to find out and and to what degree right because autism is a spectrum right it's it's not it's not it's not a one you know one particular thing what are some of the things that you can share with the audience that you've learned along your career yeah so i think the biggest thing are just understanding what the criteria are for a diagnosis of autism so the diagnostic statistical manual i think we're on our fifth edition now. Um, and it, it, like you said, it's that spectrum. So individuals for that diagnosis have to have some sort of demonstrate some sort of deficits in social communication, social interaction. And then they also have to demonstrate some sort of restricted or repetitive interest or behaviors. So you might see uh, the classic like hand flapping, you may see kids spinning the wheels or um, insistent on certain patterns or certain routines. So they have to demonstrate those sort of deficits and excesses in their behavior. Um, and it's usually seen at an early age. So I think it's before age two that you will see some of these. 
kind of behaviors. And so families can look for some of those early signs. Um, they may not respond to their name early on, may not see that babbling, um, the eye contact. So parents have reported early, as early as, you know, one years old, they're seeing development, like just not quite right. They're like other kids have some words and might be looking. Uh, sometimes they're not imitating. So, or, or responding. So little guys, right. They'll look at you and they'll be like, mommy, daddy. And they'll, they'll just point, they won't say mommy, dad. They might go, eh, eh, you know, pointing to the airplane or pointing to the pool or whatever. Kids with autism, a lot of times aren't doing that early on. So there are a lot of those kind of early signs, not looking at you, not caring if a parent is in the room or not. So there's some things that parents can identify, but again, going back to those are those core symptoms or core characteristics of autism for that diagnosis, that the deficits in social communication and interaction, and then those restricted and repetitive behaviors. So is it safe to say that the diagnosis is mainly or strictly done through behavioral observation or in today's day and age, do we have other types of tests that could be done, maybe a neurological tests or imaging tests or blood tests. Is there anything that can be done through the inside or are we still in the, in the stage where it's a behavioral observation approach? Yeah. So right now there is no blood tests or no imaging that we can conduct. It is, like you said, through the observation. So typically families, kind of how they go through the process is, Parents may say, you know, hey, something's not quite right. They're, you know, interacting with the pediatrician at their well child visits. And the doctors are like, okay, well, you know, asking a series of questions. At 18 and 24 months, there's a mandatory um, autism screener called the MCHAT that's done for all kids, whether there's um, a family suspects or the physician suspects autism. So all kids are screened at that point. It's just a lot of times parents will be asked through an iPad, you know, to answer some questions. And if there are some red flags there, then a, a pediatrician would recommend a referral to a specialist. Parents can also ask for a referral if they're, you know, saying something's not right, development's not right, they maybe just can't pinpoint what it is. They can always ask for a referral for a more in-depth assessment. So typically they would be referred to, you know, a developmental pediatrician, a child psychiatrist, child neurologist, um, to do that assessment for autism. I will say the wait lists are very long for those assessments. So yeah, it would be great if there was some sort of quick and easy way to identify autism because there just aren't enough providers out there that are trained and specialized in the diagnosis of autism also being able to differentially diagnose. So when we talk about development, um, a lot of kids, you know, it may seem like autism, but it could be maybe an intellectual disability, Down syndrome. It could be a, some other disability or diagnosis that they meet criteria for. So it's a matter of, you know, you need to have those specialized practitioners, uh, physicians that know how to conduct that assessment and, and make that diagnosis. But yeah, so that's... I will say that a lot of kids, they can be diagnosed as early as two years old, but most of them um, right now, the average is age four, that a lot of these kids are being diagnosed. So I think that just speaks to how long it takes for families to 
one access an assessment and that that specialized physician but i think it also speaks to that some families um it takes them some time to come to terms with you know mm, something's not quite right or just maybe accepting that their child does have a diagnosis of autism okay thank you what about the second question uh, will my child ever speak well, what can you yeah. tell us about that <laughs> Yeah. So um, the answer, the best answer I can give is we don't know. And it's probably not the best answer, but I think I, I get families literally all the time when they come in, like, they're like, I want my kid to talk. I need my kid to talk. And, um, and the, the good thing about it is that, you know, your kid may not talk, but there are other modalities of communication. So we can give them a way to communicate their wants and needs. And that's the most important thing. So a lot of the kids that we work with or individuals that we work with, you see a lot of maladaptive or challenging behaviors, for instance, dropping to the floor, hitting themselves in the head, biting others, kicking others. You see a lot of those behaviors happening and it's because of that lack of communication. If I can't tell you how I'm feeling or that I want something, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I want the, the toys that are up on the shelf you can imagine how frustrating that is. And so a lot of these individuals will find a way to communicate and it, it may not be the um, most appropriate or it's a more maladaptive way, but they get their point across. So, um, so our job, right, is to teach them and, and give them some way to communicate, whether it's through an exchange of a picture, through sign language, there are speech generating devices. Some people use iPads and can communicate that way. But I will say it's it's kind of funny because I like I said I have families asking me all the time, you know, when when is my kid going to talk? Are they going to talk? And you know, I can't say yes or no that your child will talk, but I can say we're going to work on it. And even when you teach some of these other modalities, a lot of times kids will you will see an increase in the vocal behavior when you're doing both. But funny story. I had uh, a couple of families that I've worked with and the parents will say, I, I just want my kid to talk. Right. And that's, that's their goal. Just talk. And then later on, we'll start working with them and the kids will start talking. So this one kid, he would say bus, bus, bus. And that was his first word, right. was bus. He loved buses. Originally he started, you know, just spinning the wheels of the bus. And then um, he would see a bus outside and he'd say bus, bus, bus. And then later on, the parents came in and they're like, he will not shut up. He just talks and talks and talks. And I tell the parents, like, you can't have it both ways. You can't have you can't have where you want your kid to talk or you want them to shut up. And to be honest, that's that's typical kind of language development. Right. But it's a little different when you have an infant or a toddler kind of working through their language versus, you know, you may have like a five or six year old that is doing the same thing when they're babbling and, and repeating their, their sounds and language over and over. It just, it seems a little bit different, but it's still kind of that appropriate kind of development of language. So I always tell parents, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> oh, I can see that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the third question is, is what is the treatment or what is the right treatment? And we know that we live in the best of times, People would like to believe that they can get answers through Dr. Google and Google and, and, and the, yes. the web obviously has its value, but that may not be the best place to go for, 
for treatment. So where, where should people go? Yeah, I think um, the best thing is, is looking at what's recommended, right? Right. What does the research recommend? And it's, it's really supporting that early intensive behavioral intervention. Um, You may hear, you know, it's based on applied behavior analysis. So ABA is, evidence-based practice. It's really the most effective treatment. It's endorsed by the U.S. Surgeon General, um, also the American Medical Association, so the AMA, all endorse ABA as the treatment. There are two drugs that are currently recommended for autism. Now, not to cure autism by any means, they are just drugs that can improve challenging behavior. So like I talked about, right, where some of the kids that cannot communicate, they're engaging in some of these challenging behaviors, aggression. uh, Sometimes you have some uh, hyperactivity, some self-injury, so they're hitting themselves. Now, these drugs do not teach communication. They don't teach social interaction, which are those core deficits in autism, right? But they they do reduce the likelihood of aggression and self-injury that does now allow them to learn some of the skills that are needed. But again, just to be clear, these drugs are not recommended to cure autism per se. But I guess to speak to ABA, I think the, the biggest thing when you're looking for those types of services, the goal of ABA is really to kind of increase those useful or desired behaviors and then reducing the interfering behaviors. That's really kind of the core of that treatment. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot out there, right, on Dr. Google um, talking about the, the cure for autism and ABA. It's, it's you know, out there to cure autism, and that's absolutely not the case. It's really to build on each individual that has autism on their strengths and then also just give them the best quality of life. So making sure that when you're looking for those providers, I'm kind of jumping into the next piece, making sure that that's what the providers are focused on is optimizing outcomes, best quality of life for those individuals and their families, and not aiming to cure them of autism and make them indistinguishable from their peers. So let me share something with you and see what are your thoughts on this and see if maybe this is something that you've seen in in your career. This is a topic that that I discussed in one of my earlier podcasts and one, uh, to be quite frank, it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. It's because I try to be, I try to live a life of being science-based and science is a process, not a destination. And science changes over time because it, science continually questions itself. You know, scientists mm-hmm. will continue to question themselves. And over time, as we find new information, we go back and we make adjustments Uh, And we've seen that in the world of medicine, you know, very, very clearly over the, at least over the past hundred years. So in your lifetime as a professional, have you seen things that maybe you learned in school or soon after school that were the norm, the approved practices that are maybe now being modified because of the new research that is coming on? Because obviously this has got a lot more attention now than it did, say, 30 years ago, and which is a good thing because that means more funding. It means more more attention to these children, the creation of better facilities for the children and, and having more people like you being educated and being out there. So in, the, in that timeline, have we made progress 
in the sense of saying, you know, this is what we believe then, but now we know better because of ABC, and therefore we're going to adjust our procedures in XYZ. Yes, I am smiling because, yes, there has been a lot of transition. So even my comment about being the goal of ABA to be indistinguishable from your peers, that was the whole goal of treatment of ABA was, and that's what all this, all the research supported was that you will teach these kids skills such that they can go into a kindergarten setting or go into a school setting and no one would notice that they had autism. You would not be able to tell, right? And that is so different now, right? They're, everybody's unique. It doesn't matter if you have autism or not. Everyone has strengths and something to bring to the table. So that is something I'm grinning because that's something that is very clear that's different. I think the punitive nature of ABA, so previously it was um, more like behavior modification, Um the earlier days, you know, it was the spray bottle for um, individuals in institutions that were severely impaired, um, engaged in a lot of self-injurious behavior and a lot of aggression. And so there were more punitive, you know, electric shock and a lot of other more punitive interventions. And we've learned that positive reinforcement is a more effective strategy. Um, and that's the first line of defense, right? That's our first intervention. So that's been a huge shift. I think the other huge shift is I'm I'm thinking back to my days as a paraprofessional, you know, trying to go outside with the kids versus sitting at the table. And I remember my BCBA, my supervisor would tell me, I would take the kid, I'd have a folder. And when the kid engaged in any sort of problem behavior, or drop to the floor, I would drop to the floor with the kid and take their hand and I would make them write their name over and over and over. So like, super physical, super punitive, because the kid dropped to the floor, as opposed to taking a step back and looking at the why. Why is this kid dropping to the floor? Maybe they don't want to go to gym class. And maybe I need to effectively teach that kid to say, I don't want to go to gym, or I'm tired, or whatever it is, right? And so that approach is very different. And it really went from this kind of like, DTT where you're it's discrete trial training when you're sitting here one-on-one it's just mass drills touch your nose touch your nose over and over and over and it's looking at you know now it's a combination we can do some drills right and and we can sit at the table and we can teach things under these very contrived situations but we can also teach in the natural environment and it can be fun And I can go outside and play with the kid and I can still teach my colors to the kid with the trees and everything else. Right. So it's, um, it's, it's just this combination of, you know, what's the best environment to teach. And I mean, I could go on and on, but there are, there are a lot of different areas that the science has evolved and I hope it continues to evolve because there's, there is such a need to, you know, right now, the big thing is compassionate care. And making sure that we are understanding what the families are going through, what the clients are going through, listening and building rapport with our families and our clients and um, not sitting there going, touch your nose and, you know, making them what people used to call little robots, right? We're teaching these kids to be little robots. And now it's like, no, everybody's a human and let's treat everybody like a human and, and look at preferences and look at building off of everybody's strengths and 
what what they want, right? What's your what are your goals in life and and really focusing treatment that way. Thank you for sharing that. So that's that's encouraging that we we are we're still taking a scientific approach about this and we are we are evolving. We're looking at our past mistakes as a as a society and as as practitioners and as scientists and and making improvements. Do you think uh, along those same lines I was telling somebody, I don't know, it was over the weekend that I was having this talk with you today and I, I was excited about it and I was you know, sharing that I'm, I'm, because this is a topic that is of, of great interest to me. Is there any science out there that is telling us why this manifests the way it does? More, more like what are the sources of this? Because it seems this this one person that I was talking to uh, ask me, say, well, is this always been around and we just didn't know that, what it was? And percentage-wise, everything has basically been unchanged over the past several hundred years. And just because we are 7 billion of us now, we just you know see more of it. Or has something changed in the way we live or in the way we are that now this manifests itself in greater percentages? Is there any science to go one way or, or the other with that that question? Yeah. So really right now there is no answer, right? We don't know why. There is a lot of research going on right now to look at genetics. So the the what we do know is there's a genetic component and there's an environmental component, but they haven't quite pinpointed exactly what that is. Right. So there are, I think the last time I heard, and it's probably changed, it was like there's over a hundred different genes that they that they've identified that link to autism and and then the environmental component, they're still looking at that as well. So I think that piece of it, right, there is no answer yet that we know. But I do think the other piece of it is just because of the diagnostic criteria, because of awareness. I think people I mean, we're just seeing that increase, right? What was it? One in 36 uh, individuals now are diagnosed with autism. So I think it is a matter of the fact that there's just so much awareness to what are the criteria. And I think the criteria are just broader. And so people are falling under that um, umbrella of autism. I, I also think the diagnosis of, of autism, you get access to services. So it is really important that because of all of the attention um, with that diagnosis, the early intervention is, is key. Right. And so definitely not a straightforward answer, right. Of like why we're seeing this, but I, I, there are definitely a, a couple of different reasons probably why we're seeing um, the numbers that we're seeing. They're growing. I think I saw it was like, it's grown like 300% in the last so much, so many years. And, and we're seeing it, right. It was, one in 50 and that's one in 36 and it's just, it's changing pretty rapidly. Well, yeah, but at least it's, it's at least, even though that's inconclusive, which is again, part of the scientific process is this is inconclusive. It, to me, it seems a little bit encouraging that there is a genome component and then an environmental component, because that tells me based on another talk that I had earlier um, that, You know, genes get up-regulated or down-regulated as a function of the environment, right? So if we bake, 
if we make an effort as a society, as a community, as a family to create environments that are a bit more wholesome, then there's a chance for some that those genes don't get upregulated or downregulated depending on, on which ones they are. And then the manifestations may not be as, may not be present or, or as severe. We don't know. I mean, it's early. But the fact that there's two sides to that situation gives it, at least in my mind, gives it a little bit of hope. Yeah. And it's really interesting because there's a lot of studies on like siblings and, you know, there's a lot of twins that both have autism. Siblings, you know, if, if one has autism, parents are highly encouraged to have the other sibling assess because there's a higher likelihood. So that definitely plays into that, that genome side, right? The gene side of things. So it is very interesting. Well, to wrap up, what would you like to share with the audience? You know, we talked earlier about potential misconceptions, right? That, that people may have out there. And then, you know, if you can name three big misconceptions that that you see on a day-to-day basis when it comes to the world of of autism and then where can people go for for more information yeah so i think the first one is the first misconception is that all kids with autism have intellectual disabilities uh, i think the data support that only like 50 percent of individuals with autism have intellectual disabilities i think another misconception is that individuals because of this diagnosis or have this diagnosis uh, can't lead productive lives and f- fulfilled lives. And that's also not true. Um, I think that's our job. It's a family's job. It's their job, right, to to help them to have the best quality of life. I think the other misconception um, is there's a, there's a, a push with anti-ABA right now. And I think families need to do their research to understand that all providers are not the same. And to understand um, kind of why why there's this push for anti-ABA, where those families are coming from, where the individuals are coming from. A lot of times, I'm not saying all, but a lot of times um, the people that are, that are um, against ABA probably receiving services when it was uh, kind of the more punitive um, approach, sit at a table for 40 hours a week, drill after drill, and, and really not... Um, focusing on that compassionate care. So again, right, like all physicians, all providers, there are good and bad. Um, and you as an, a parent or a consumer has to do the work to understand what's the best, who is the best provider for you and your family. So I think it, it goes down to asking questions related to what do you do, you know, asking asking the providers what 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 do you do? Who are your providers? What um, what are the outcomes of your uh, previous clients? Just really asking asking the questions of the providers to make sure they're a good fit for you. Because again, going back to ABA is that evidence based and what's recommended for individuals with autism. Well, great. Thank you very much for sharing that. Well, thank you. Thanks again, uh, Melissa. Hopefully. This is obviously a topic that we can't cover in 30 minutes. So uh, (laughs) there's a lot more that I would want to ask you, but maybe we can have you back in the future and and cover some more. I know this is a topic of interest. It's of importance. It's it's close to my heart as of recent and uh, would love to 
to be a resource for the audience. I will ask you for your top place to go for information for parents or people who want to learn more about autism. Is there a good place that you go to? Yeah, I, I really think the Centers for Disease Control is probably your best bet. There's also Autism Speaks that has uh, some information there and some resources. And those are probably my top two. There's there's some more that I can uh, definitely send your way for families, you know, if they're looking for uh, providers or they're looking for adult services versus uh, early intervention or diagnostic. Um, there's a, a wealth of information. So I can definitely send those over for your um, listeners to uh, look into. Well, great, Melissa. Thank you very much for your time. And then we'll be talking soon. Sounds good. Thank you for the invitation.